Thank you for listening to the Competition Committee Podcast. Check out new episodes every Thursday. Welcome, everybody, to the Competition Committee, a sports podcast where we explore current rule changes and rule changes we think would make the sports we love more fun for the fans. I am your host, Parker, and joining me, as always, is JJ. And today we have quite an interesting lineup of topics to discuss. We have the NFL safety rule. We're going to dive in and see how we can fix that. We play a little three rules and a lie. Lastly, we'll dig into Formula One talking about the DRS system, and we'll read an email at the end as well. Before we do that, I want to bring in our committee pundit for today's episode, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, I'm looking forward to this. I've been excited about it all day. Awesome. We are glad to have you. Well, let's jump right in here, JJ. NFL safety, something that's pretty rare in the game, but not as valued as much in the point system. Talk to me how we can fix this. Well, let's start with what we've got. The safety's worth two points. So why is the safety worth two points? It seems the safety's worth two points because in 1893, Walter Camp wrote a book called The Book of College Sports. And in it, he stated a safety is worth two points. That's why a safety is worth two points. But that's not what a safety should be worth. A safety is one of the rarest scoring plays. And as a rare scoring play, it should be more valued. Initially, when I started this, I thought it should be worth nine points. So I started doing a little bit of research and I found out that I'm not the first person to think about this. Alex Kirshner of the Banner Society in 2020 proposed that the safety should be 11 points. I thought about it a little bit, and I actually think he's right. Here's some of his reasoning. 27% of all NFL drives result in touchdowns. Only 0.2% of NFL drives result in safeties. So safeties are far less common. They should be worth more. He has an analogy. Alex says, what if a half-court shot in basketball was worth only one point, something that's very, very hard to do, and yet you reward it very low? So why 11? His argument, and I think it's really valid, is that 11 makes it worth just a little bit more than a touchdown and a field goal combined. So that's my proposal. It's really his proposal, but I also thought of it. We change the value of a safety from two points to 11 points. What do you guys think? I think it's an interesting concept. It would change how people play at the end of the game. You know, you'd find yourself in situations where, you know, if you'd want the touchdown and onside kick and, and field goal, teams would be trying to pin the opponent on their essentially one yard line mm -hmm. and, um, and then see if they can get the safety from there. Yeah, that's what I was – I was trying to imagine that in my head, what that would even look like, driving the ball to essentially the one-yard line and just taking a knee and allowing the team to take over on downs 
and then just go on full on bull rush sprint to try to get the 11 points. And I'm, I'm trying to think if that would be, I know the purists would just absolutely hate this. I'm just trying to think if, if this would be, I don't think that's the way it would get used. That would be the rare exception where you're behind by 11 points and you have to get 11 points, you know, towards the end of the game. I think the way it gets used, remember there used to be something called the coffin corner punt. And it was really popular about 20 years ago. There were, there were kickers who would really focus on kicking the ball, punting the ball, I should say, out of bounds inside the five-yard line. For some reason, mm-hmm. that seems to have kind of gone away. But this would come back, and it would be extremely important. It would make special teams very important. Right. The ability to kick the ball and get it inside the five-yard line or inside the three-yard line. You might even see people hunting the ball in instances where they normally wouldn't. If you were on the opposing team's, I don't know, 40-yard line or something where a long field goal would be possible, maybe a little bit farther in, you might kick this corner punt if you had a punter that you had a lot of confidence in getting it out of bounds. And David, I kind of thought you might like this because think of how much focus this puts on the defense and how your Bears have had this traditional... (laughs) aggressive defense and how much fun it would be for the the Bears defense to win football games by scoring 11 points. Oh, it'd be fantastic. I mean, I think it would obviously bring a a new excitement to the game, you know, something that, you know, you're not used to seeing. I think strategy would change significantly. I don't I'm not sure it would I'm sure it would be like the go-to play all the time, but I think there would be certain situations where you would definitely want to try to set it up to where you could have that opportunity. Yeah, I I really like it. I mean, I think most people would jump on board with the fact that safeties need to be more viable. Two points is, is nothing. And I think whether that's nine points, 11 points, it doesn't really matter to me. It just needs to be something more significant. I mean, it's such a rare and exciting play to begin with that something crazy happens where you get the safety. Well, it's only two points. And I guess they punt the ball to us and we get the ball back again. And I mean, which is great and all, I would just, I would love for it to be more meaningful and having it be whatever point, nine or 11, I would think it it would make it more fun for the fans, absolutely. I, uh, in my research, I found another article written by a Ty Schalter of 538. 538 is the political, I guess, political and sports website that uses analytics and statistics to look at things. And he had an interesting table. And he, he pointed out that right now, with a two-point safety, if you get a two-point safety in a game, it increases your probability of winning by 7.1%. So imagine you're in a game where it's a straight up 50-50 game. Either team has a 50-50 shot of winning, well-balanced teams. If one team gets a safety, it increases their likelihood of winning that game by 7%. So it goes from 50% to 57%. That's Mm -hmm. small. I mean, it's much smaller than a touchdown. If, however, you change it to 11 points, then the probability increases 
9%, just say 24%. So again, if you had a 50-50 game and you were able to score a safety and it was worth 11 points, that would mean you now have a 74% chance of winning. And that just feels about right. Yeah, I was just thinking that, you know, back to the excite, my excitement comment, like think about how important the long snapper role is. I mean, I realize it's already important, but if you're pinned down and, and you're trying to punt out of the end zone, like, and you you sell that thing over the head or you dribble it back to them, like, you know, they just kick the ball out of the back of the end zone now to prevent a, you know, a touchdown. But now they're not going to do that. They're just, and they're going to let the other team just get the ball because it's seven points as opposed to 11. You're right. The the intentional safety simply goes away. And I hadn't thought about the punting aspect of it, but that would make a punt out of your end zone very exciting. Very much so. Yeah, I do like that high leverage situation for the non, I want to say non-skill players, but I mean, long snapper is kind of an overlooked position. I would... I do like that idea of having more pressure on those positions that they might not have had otherwise. I'm curious to see your scores and ratings for this rule. Let's uh, let's go around the room and start with JJ. What do you think? So we're voting one to ten, but can't use seven. Is that right, Parker? That is your rule to not use seven. But okay. I agree. Let's not use seven. Okay. Well, I like this a lot. I'm a little bit concerned that uh, the last three rules I voted on, I gave 10, but I'm going to give 10 <laughs> again. Okay. So I David? give it 10. Uh, I think, you know, it would be so awesome to see in practicality, it'll never happen, but I, I, I think I'd give it, I'd give it an eight. Okay. I really do want to give this a seven, but I really want this to happen. I really want this number to be 9, 10, 11, 12 points. I don't really care. I really want this to happen, so I'm going to give it a 9. Okay, so we got 9 plus 8 plus 10 divided by 3. That's 9. So that's higher than 8. Parker, I think we send this off to the competition committee at the NFL. Sign, sealed, delivered. It will be going to Roger Goodell. That's going to wrap it for this segment. We will take a brief break, and when we come back, we will play Three rules and a lie. Parker, where do you want to eat breakfast this morning? Let's grab some food at the Waffle House. Waffle House. It's like a guy with two waffle irons serving you breakfast in a gas station bathroom. Welcome back to the competition committee. We're going to try out a new segment today, boys. This segment is called Three Rules and a Lie. I will be listing out four rules in various different sports. Three of these rules are actual rules. One of these rules is not a real rule. And you guys are going to have to tell me which one is which. This sounds like fun. You guys ready? Absolutely. Get me with it. The first one in tennis, if a player hits a ball and drops his hat while he is hitting the ball, 
it is considered a hindrance and the point can be stopped and replayed. <laughs> the second rule. Hey, hang on, an, hang on, uh, hang uh, on. So I don't think tennis players wear hats. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, most of them do. My, my wife can't hear this because if I get this wrong, she's going to be mad. She's a tennis player. And I'm not sure if I know it. I've never heard I, it, that's for sure. This tennis has a lot of strange rules. I mean, Wimbledon, you have to wear all white. I don't know. What are the others? Okay. Number two is in baseball. If the batter hits a line drive up the middle, it can be considered a foul ball. If it hits the rubber and caroms out of bounds. So it hits the pitching rubber and then bounces out of bounds, it would be a foul ball. Mm-hmm. Is it only the pitching rubber? Or can it be any of the bases? I guess it'd be, never mind, that's a silly response because it got past the base. So The batter hits a line drive up the middle, hits the pitching rubber, and caroms out of play. I don't know. I'm going to have to... Uh, See which of these seem the least ridiculous when you get done. I don't know about this one. Okay, let me do number three. This one is in football. If a team punts the ball and the receiving team calls for a fair catch, that fair catch team has the option to kick an immediate field goal at that that spot. You know, football used to be so different. You know, initially there was virtually no passing. And kicking was extremely important. I wouldn't be surprised if this is a leftover rule from, who knows, the early 1900s. This one feels real to me. What about you, David? I guess when you say immediately, like, so on the first down, you can just kick a field goal. Yep. Yep, that is, that's the end of their possession. Yeah, I would say that's, I would say that's a rule as well. And the fourth rule in golf if a player is practicing their stroke off the tee and they accidentally or incidentally hit their ball in a practice swing, that is considered their first stroke. JJ, I will throw it to you. Parker, just say them back to me real quick, just so I can make sure I have them, and then I'm going to guess. Okay. First one is in tennis. If the player is hitting a shot and they drop their hat, whether that's on purpose, by accident, that is considered a let, and the opposing player can call a hindrance, and the play is dead, and they have to replay the point. Okay. Second one in baseball, it is considered, let's see here, baseball, if the batter hits a line drive, and it hits the pitching rubber, and it caroms out of play, or outside the foul lines. Okay. I, I know which one I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick the baseball one. And here's my logic. Baseball's a very, very old sport. And I think baseball is older than rubber. So I'm going to mm-hmm. guess that that used to not be there. So I don't think this is a real rule. That's my guess. Okay. David, what do you think? Well, I actually know the answer to this one. It's the golf one because Zach Johnson is very happy that this is not a rule 
a real rule. <laughs> he has famously hit his tee ball on his practice swing multiple times, most famously at hole 13 at Augusta National, and it's one of my favorite videos every That's right. first week in April. Yeah, that video cracks me up every single time I watch it, but that is correct. The fourth rule that I mentioned, the golf one, it is not considered your first stroke if you accidentally hit your ball on the tee box. So, the so my theory about rubber, my theory about yep. rubber not existing didn't really work. Okay, well I tried. No, it did not. But I, the one that I thought was the most interesting was the the ball hit right up the middle, line drive, hits the rubber, goes out of bounds or goes foul. It's considered a foul ball. I I actually never heard of that before. I always thought, <laughs> yeah, if it hits, obviously the the rubber is in play. If it hits something that's in play, it's got to be fair. But it's just crazy. If you hit something right down the middle of the field, it has a chance to be foul. It's just crazy to me. I, th- I think that's because it's the only thing that, you know, non-player that it can hit that's mm. not considered fair or foul, right? Yeah. Because if obviously yes. it hits the ba- if it hits one of the first or third base, it's in it's it's fair. But right, I guess inversely as well. If if a ball is hit straight foul and it hits a random piece of rubber in in foul territory that goes fair, it's considered a fair ball if somebody touches it fair. So, yeah, if you think of it that way, it, it makes some sense. Wait, that's true, or you're just speculating? No, that's if if somebody hits it foul. And it knocks, it hits a rock, and it bounces back into fair territory. And somebody touches it while it's in fair territory, it's it's a fair ball. Well, I didn't know that rule either. You could have gotten me on two of them. Yeah, me too. Okay. <laughs> I like the game, Parker. I just didn't yeah, do well. well. Did you did you know about that fair catch kick rule? I I do. It seems like I I, I had heard about that. I knew there were some strange things. What was that guy that used to do Monday Night Football? I mean, a long time ago. Uh, John Madden? Uh, no, older than that. Uh, Gifford. Um, what was his name? Don Gifford. I think I remember hearing about him do that. That he. Uh... Anyway, I'm not sure about that. Well, if there's ever, uh, ever a trivia question with this, the last time this was ever attempted was in 1976. When Ray Worshing of the Chargers attempted a free catch kick, or however they want to call it, and it was a 45-yard attempt, and he made it. We will take a brief break, and when we come back, Patrick will join us and talk a little Formula One. Parker, where do you buy all these video games? I buy them at Toys R Us. Toys R Us. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. Welcome back to the competition committee. We are excited to bring in Patrick, who is our F1 expert. 
He's going to be helping us discuss JJ's new proposed rule and how to improve F1. So let's just jump right into it, JJ. What do you got in store for us? Well, let me start by telling you what I think the problem is. And I'm going to go back and look at Formula One in 2022. There were 22 races and there are three podium spots per race. So 66 podium positions were available. 65 of those positions were taken by only three teams, Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari. They were first, second, and third in 21 of those races. Only one of those races did McLaren get a third place. Mm. There are 10 teams in Formula One. So that means six of those teams never even got on the podium. In fact, Haas, which was established in 2016, has never made a podium. So we've got a problem in that Formula One racing is not competitive. Now it's competitive at the top, and there's something called the midfield that's competitive, but the midfield almost never gets on the podium. Again, last year, only one time did a team other than those top three get on the podium. So it's not very much fun to be a fan of Haas, for example. Again, Haas hasn't won, hasn't been on the podium, hasn't even gotten a third place since they were established in 2016. So I'm going to say that that's the problem. Here's my proposed solution. But there's something in Formula One called DRS. It's Drag Reduction System. And it was put in place so that cars could pass each other. But what it does is it essentially makes a car faster in the straights. I propose, okay. well, I, sh I should back up. DRS is permitted or allowed um, when you're within one second of the car in front of you in one of these detection zones as you enter a DRS zone. So the purpose of that, again, is so that you have the opportunity to go around another car and make the passing better. But the other thing it does is it simply makes the cars faster. I propose that each team, there are 10 teams, each team gets to use what I'm calling full DRS, which means they get to use full DRS in every straight for three races. To make this even more interesting, these races, they don't announce which races they're going to select for their full DRS race. Instead, they can establish DRS full race anytime after the second lap, that's when DRS becomes available, by simply telling the race director they're doing it over the radio. At any time in the race, they can activate this, which also means if one of their competitors, somebody who they're trying to beat in the constructors challenge does it, they could they could match them by also doing it. So that's my proposed solution. Fair enough. So knowing what I know about Formula One, and I appreciate you gentlemen having me on this evening, I would challenge that pretty much immediately. And, and the reason for that is that there is evidence based on the commentary that I watched at this year's Azerbaijan Grand Prix that would indicate that there were cars on the grid with DRS activated that were actually slower than the Red Bulls without DRS activated. So I think it becomes a problem of just quite purely a particular constructor, Red Bull in this case, have brought a car that is 12 to 15 miles per hour faster than any of the other constructors have managed to bring. And if you look back to the regulation change, so they brought DRS in in 2011. 
And that was largely a response to the reality that at the time, Formula One cars and their performance was largely dictated by the performance of the front wing. They generated the vast majority of their downforce via the front wing. Consequently, you had cars that could not follow one another closely. So it made for exceptionally boring racing back in the day. This would be during the time period when Sebastian Vettel was able to accomplish his four uh, world championships. Red Bull brought a fantastic car then, just as they have now. They have Adrian Newey on their side as you know their uh, chief aeronauticist and, and kind of car engineer. And granted, he's a you know he's a luminary in the field. He knows exactly what he's doing. When they changed the regulations in 2021. They brought a vehicle that focused primarily on downforce via the floor. So Formula One cars nowadays, given the 2021 regulation changes, do not generate the, mass, the vast majority of their downforce via the front wing. And this is all part of the competitive changes that, to their credit, the FIA are attempting to make racing more exciting. So a lot nowadays, these cars generate a, a lot more of their downforce via the floor of the car, via ground effect, like what we would have seen in the late 80s, like the John Player Special Lotus and these cars where they had the, you know, the droppable skirts and that sort of thing, where the car was literally sucked to the road. That's made racing much more competitive. That's made the cars able to follow one another a lot more closely. And if you look at the times in this season's races, very few cars are getting lapped, so clearly what they're doing is working. However, DRS remains kind of a big, let's call it a fly in the ointment, in that cars like Red Bull, who have brought a fantastic vehicle for this year's championship, with a DRS, it's almost like a NOS boost. They're able to just run away with their 12 to 15 mile an hour advantage. And from my perspective, I would like to see it eliminated altogether. I think the racing would be closer if you got rid of it entirely. Patrick, I understand that there are people that don't like DRS because they don't think it's necessary for overtaking. They think it's made overtaking too easy. What I'm talking about is not really using DRS for overtaking, but instead in three races using DRS to make slow cars faster. It's difficult to know how much DRS is really worth. It, obviously, it varies track to tracks. Some tracks have more DRS, some have less. Some of them, it, it depends on a lot. But DRS is probably worth about a half a second to a second a lap. So for, for just talking purposes, we'll say it's worth 0.7 seconds a lap. I went back and looked at the race simulations before the actual Azerbaijan Grand Prix. And I guess it's something that our our listeners need to understand is right now there are really four cars that are better than everybody else. The Red Bull, the Ferrari, and the Aston Martin. And the race simulation said that Red Bull was going to be about 0.16 seconds faster than the Ferrari, about 0.46 seconds faster than the Mercedes, and about 0.51 seconds faster. This is faster per lap than the Aston Martin. And then you get to the midfield and it really starts to fall down. What I'm arguing is let's let, for three races, let's let those midfield teams have faster cars. And the way we do that is let them have this DRS. So all of a sudden, they're 0.7, they're 0.7 seconds a lap faster. So that means if you kind of just look at what could have happened in the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, 
if Ferrari, Mercedes, or Aston Martin had utilized the full DRS, but Red Bull hadn't, then they actually would have had faster cars than the Red Bull at this race and maybe could have beat them. Are but there if you instances, wanna... sorry, JJ, but are there instances of the DRS actually helping those middle tier cars actually place better? Have there been races, whether that's this year or last year, where it's helped those middle of the pack drivers either get into better position and win? Have that Has that happened? So I would say pretty consistently, in particular in the midfield, DRS is very critical for those midfield teams to be able to achieve pace similar to the leading team. Very often, and I think looking at the statistics that you guys have provided, especially Aston Martin, number one in terms of team DRS activations, to me, that kind of dovetails into their position in the midfield. They're not leading, as you would expect from a leading car, Max Verstappen having won two of the last four races, Sergio Perez having won also two of the last four races. I think if you were to look at their DRS activations over time, they're the lead car most of the time. And with them having nobody out in front of them in order to be able to activate DRS, they have a minimized chance, right? So that, that kind of like pads the stats, if you will, not in the favor of these cars, but but in, in fact, the opposite. Whereas the midfield cars, you know, especially you've probably heard it in the race commentary referred to as the DRS train. Very often these cars will get into it in the midfield where you got four or five cars equally competitive or thereabouts. And it's crucial for all of them to have DRS to be able to match the pace of some of the leading cars. And, and that kind of speaks to my point from earlier. I'm of the opinion that even with that DRS advantage where they're getting it lap after lap, perhaps trading places with the lead car in that DRS train so that they can each take advantage of it. Not like, not unlike how you would in like, let's say the Peloton at the Tour de France or something like that. You let the lead swap out, but all those cars are achieving approximately the same pace. And yet that's still falling significantly short of the pace achievable by something like Red Bull's car from this year. My opinion, again, it's not merely about padding those stats with the DRS. I think the FIA are doing great work in terms of the cost caps because, quite frankly, these guys can afford to spend the money in the wind tunnel. And to me, that's in CAD simulations and that sort of thing. That, that's where they're really gaining the advantage. They can spend that time simulating out to the you know heat death of the universe how well that car is going to run under various aerodynamic conditions. And I think the FIA, in continuing to limit that, are doing the right the right thing now. Will it will it be seen yet like Formula 2, Formula 3, where we're running like largely the same cars? Or if you've watched Moto 2, Moto 3, where those races are, you know, they're just swapping lead every single lap. I hope that Formula 1 can achieve that level of, of excitement. Let me make my argument one more time and then I'll give up. Okay. Again, our, our podcast, we are trying to make sports more fun for the fans. And I believe that if we had my idea for full DRS for one race, if we just look at Azerbaijan, that if Haas had used it, they would have had a decent chance of getting a third place podium. If yeah. Alpine had used it, they would have had a decent chance of getting a third place podium. If McLaren had used it, they would have. Williams, would, Williams could have even gone all the way up to second place, possibly. Now there's another, there's another 
thing that comes into play. If you knew you were going to use the drag force reduction system full race, I think you would you would come to that race with a car that has more downforce so that you could race better in the corners and you wouldn't right. be penalized as bad in the straights. Now, it would be an artificial third place because they really aren't faster than the Aston Martin or the Mercedes or the Ferrari, but it would be a chance to make midfield get on the podium occasionally. Sure. I think the other thing it would do at the front of the race, which would really be interesting, is because teams would gang up on Red Bull, and I think that would be exciting. So I think Ferrari, Mercedes, and Aston Martin would never pick the same race to use their full DRS. Instead, they would all try to use races that Red Bull isn't using it. So Red, Red Bull can only use it three times, mm-hmm. but Ferrari, Aston Martin, and Mercedes all together get to use it nine times. So that means at least six of those races, one of those three teams is going to have a car that might be as fast as the Red Bull. And that would make exciting racing up front. I don't think in the end it's going to change anything in the championship, especially this year. Red Bull's just too fast. Somebody racing for Red Bull's going to win. But it would sure make those races more interesting for the fans of the teams that can't win getting on the podium. So that's that's my argument. Yeah. I think it would make it more fun for the fans. I acknowledge that it is cheating. So, and from the fan perspective, just kind of spitballing on the idea you put forth, you know, they do the driver of the day. They do all these various things where they have fans kind of vote in. I wonder if they couldn't tie into that some sort of fan component, not unlike how they do for um, Formula E, where the fans actually get to unlock a driver boost. If we could do that for Formula One and unlock a DRS boost, <laughs> that would be awesome. And yeah, that cool. you know, that, that's one of the biggest challenges I see. Uh, again, rooting for so many guys in the midfield. Like I think Lando Norris is awesome. I think K-Mag is awesome. Um, I would love to see Fernando Alonso get a third world championship. You know, I, all of these big names that I think are not seeing their full potential simply because they're not in the fastest car. And that's always been the big challenge in Formula One is you have the 20 best drivers in the world. Let's do more to even the playing field. I agree with you completely. Like <laughs> have a little have you know, a little pad in the stats. Let's have some fun with it and get you know, I, get them beating up on one another a little more. You know, I, I do have mixed mixed feelings about it though, because I don't like IndyCar as much because they're all racing the same car. It is it is exciting to see a team develop a car. It's it's fun to cheer for engineers also and not just cheer for race car drivers. So I and I enjoy the fact that the 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 cars aren't matched. I just think this would be a fun way to let three times a year let that midfield car be competitive. It's not going to win a championship. It's not going to make win the constructors championship. But it would be it would be fun to see, you know, just for example, if Alpine and McLaren are in a dogfight for what would it be this year? Probably fifth place in the constructors sure. challenge to see them matching each other or avoiding each other in this DRS full race. It would be fun. The purists would hate it. I guess we're probably <laughs> done talking about it. Parker. Or, or even that an unknown driver. Well, not an unknown driver, but a, a driver that you don't expect to win a Grand Prix like the last couple of years at. Monza, you know, last couple of years, we've had wins from um, Pierre Gasly, who was not expected. 
and Daniel Ricardo, also not expected. And those were two of my favorite races from the last couple of years, purely because mixing things up a little bit. It wasn't always a Red Bull or a Mercedes no. or a super competitive Ferrari at the front. You love to see those kind of underdogs come from behind. So, yeah, if, but, if it mixes things up a bit, let's go. By the way, okay. By the way, my, my first car was a Chevy Monza, and it was a dog. <laughs> but I never knew where the name came from back Maybe then. Maybe not the Temple of Speed. <laughs> it was not. Well, uh, all right, boys. That's That was great stuff. Let's uh, Let's vote. Patrick, we'll start with you on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the best proposed rule you've ever heard, 1 being the absolute worst rule you've ever heard. What do you score it? I followed the FIA for a long time, and particularly Jean-Marie Belest. Uh, they've had a lot of terrible rules, so I'm going to give this a, at minimum an eight. You know, if it mixes things up, let's go. I'm, I'm happy to happy to support anything that changes the status quo. A surprising eight. I was uh, not expecting an eight from from Patrick there. Okay, awesome. Well, I, you know, give I, it... I like to make a strong argument, but I also like to see Formula One shaken up. So I'm, yeah. I'm all for it. JJ is a he's a convincing man. I will give it a six as a very casual fan. When I do when I do watch it, I do like to see that bottom left corner go green, meaning that they're they're gonna go faster than they usually would. Mm -hmm. Anytime that that time can get it, or I can see it more often, it would make it more fun for me. I, I'd give it a six. Patrick, you don't know this, but Parker knows it. I seem to always give everything a 10. I'm going to give it a 10 again. Uh, <laughs> so that gives us an average of an 8. So I think this one okay. gets to go to the uh, FIA. You got the address, Parker? I can look it up. I will shove it in an envelope and send it their way. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us. And uh, if we have any future F1 topics, we'll, we'll be sure to bring you on. And thanks for joining us. Absolutely. This has been super fun, and I appreciate you guys including me. We will take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll dig into our email bag. Stay tuned. Parker, where did you get all this electronic equipment for making our podcast? I got it all at Radio Shack. Radio Shack, America's technology store. We are back with David joining us once again. It is time to dig in some of our emails and pull out a message that was sent to us by Brian from DC. Thank you, Brian. He says, Guys, I have the perfect rule for the NFL. I call it the catch-up rule. As soon as one team is down by more than 14 points, that team gets five downs to make a first down. <laughs> of course, they return to only four downs to make a first down as soon as they get within 14 points of the other team. To state the obvious, this would reduce the number of, quote, blowouts. And as you boys like to say, it would make it more fun for the fans. Interesting. JJ, you want to lead us off? What do you think? Well, I like this email. I did a little bit of research on it. I saw it ahead of time. Here are my thoughts on it. I went back and looked at the 2022 season. 
By the way, how many NFL games do you think there are? Just off the top of your head. Oh, good lord! Don't think, don't think too hard. Just throw something out there, including playoffs, and Super Bowl, and everything. David, got a guess? Four hundred. More or less. You're saying four hundred total, or four hundred thousand? No, how many games in a season? Oh, I thought you were talking about total. Oh, um, I will yeah, say ever. over four hundred. <laughs> okay, it's one hundred eighty-seven. Um, Good lord! So, so a lot less than you thought. You told me not to think so hard. There you go. Right. One hundred eighty-seven games. Fifty-six of them ended with a differential of fifteen points or greater. I'm not sure what that email said. Did it say more than fourteen points? This catch-up rule comes into effect, or at fourteen points, it comes into effect. As soon as one team is down more than 14 points. Okay. So there are there were 56 games that ended with a differential of 15 or higher. So that's 30% of the games. Hmm. In my mind, once a team is down by 14 points, I know, I know what they like to say on the red zone. They like to say they're within two scores, and I always say that's 16 points, but that's two scores with two two-point conversions, which doesn't – it's still a long ways to go. I think when you're down more than 14, it is a blowout. And it turns out that 30% of our games end that way. So that's 30% of our games that aren't very exciting or at least aren't very exciting at the end. So I really like this idea. So I kind of thought of what, what, does, what does having an extra down mean? So you've got five downs to make a first down. Well, last year, the average yards per rushing attempt was 4.5. So let's just say you add one rush to that extra down. So that kind of gives you, essentially, instead of having a first and 10, you equivalently have, your equivalent first down is a first and five and a half. And just think of how much easier that would be. I think teams would score a lot when they had this advantage in the in, in the catch up rule. Oh, for sure. Now, purists always try to you know not change the game and all that, and I get all and I understand that. But this wouldn't this just completely mess with all the history? I realize that's not that big of a. In this, obviously, we're just having a nice discussion here. But I mean, that would kind of. It could. Obviously, it depends how bad the team is. Maybe an extra down doesn't help them, and it doesn't help their stats, but they would potentially get 25% more. David, I, I understand what you're saying, but stats in the NFL aren't the same thing as stats in baseball because the game has changed so much. Look at how much passing there is now and how many touchdowns there are now compared to what there used to be. So the oh, NFL sure. is willing to change. I do understand your point that records and things would be I'm, – I'm not sure how individual records would be affected by this. Yeah, that's um, the only thing I was thinking of. But obviously, all of these big rule changes the purists are going to hate. But the idea of having more close games seems to me to make it more fun for the fans. Brian, I appreciate you sending in this email, but I sternly disagree with this rule. I just don't like this secret backdoor of a chance for a team that gets rewarded for playing poorly in the entire game. And they get this catch-up rule where they have a match. 
magic chance to come back. And I, I do agree it makes it more fun for half the fans, not for the fans in general. I would I would say it's more fun for half the fans. I just don't like the idea of, of a cop-out for a team that probably hasn't been playing well the whole game, and they get this catch-up rule where they get a magic chance to come back. Parker, I think you're thinking again as a fan of one team. I think most NFL games are watched by people who aren't fans of those teams. People just watch the NFL. And if I'm stuck on a Thursday night game and it's 20, there's a 21-point deficit, I'm going to turn it off. But if I don't have any rooting interest for either team and somebody goes down by 15 or more, I want to see what happens. I want to see if they can come back. I just think it would be fun for the fan. And I guess there's two other things that that I just thought of. You could have this bizarre scenario where you want to avoid that 15-point lead. Imagine <laughs> imagine that you <laughs> that you're up by 8 and you score a touchdown. You might purposely miss your extra point so that the other team doesn't get that advantage. Um, that's kind of it's just fun to think about. Yeah. And combine yes. that with the nine points or 11 points for a safety, and you could get some really big changes swings <laughs> there. There you go. Well, let's vote on this. I will start because I feel like I'm the most opinionated with this rule. I give it a two. A two? Okay. David, what do you got? Uh, I'll give it a six. Okay. This is the first time ever that I haven't given something a 10, but I am going to give it an eight. I do think it's a good idea. So what do we have? We got a two, a six, and an eight. And that adds up to, there you go, 5.3. That does not make it to the uh, NFL competition committee. You're safe, Roger Goodell. You don't have to worry about this one. That is going to wrap today's episode. I want to thank David and Patrick for joining us today. I also want to thank our sponsors, Waffle House, Toys R Us, and Radio Shack. Help us make the competition committee a community. Send us your ideas for rule changes via the email machine at thecompetitioncommittee at AOL.com. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore TCC podcast or find us on Facebook at the competition committee podcast. Please tell your friends about us. If you listen to us on Apple, please subscribe and give us a five-star review on Spotify. Maybe we don't deserve five stars, but it helps listeners find us anyway. Thanks for listening this week and look for our new podcast each and every Thursday.